Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, and welcome to Archive Sleuth, the podcast in which I, Georgina Asfau, ferret around in the archives to unearth stories of the extraordinary in ordinary past lives. This is episode three of the story of Mary Blandy and the patricidal poisoning. If you haven't already done so, I recommend you pause now and go back and listen to the first two episodes first, before listening to this, the final chapter. By the end of the last episode, Mary Blandy, a polite gentlewoman of prosperous upbringing, was under arrest on the charge of murdering her father by poisoning. Precious letters, which could have incriminated her fiancé, the noble-born Lothario Captain Cranston, had been burned by her own hand days earlier. Shackled in irons, Mary was transported from her native Henley to the county town of Oxford, twenty miles away, to face trial. The arrest of a young, genteel woman for the gruesome act of murdering her own father soon gained national notoriety. Within weeks, full accounts of the coroner's inquest and the witness statements were being reprinted in newspapers up and down the land, from Salisbury to Aberdeen, from Sussex to Newcastle. Even once locked up within the thick, cold stone walls of Oxford's medieval castle, Mary couldn't escape the gossipy, determined journalists. The press and the public were hungry for any clues that might unlock this woman's character, and her life in prison was regularly reported on. Among the juicier titbits that made its way into the papers was a report that Mary was thrown into great confusion and disappointment when told that her father died worth no more than £4,000, far less than the fortune of £10,000 she and Cranston had been expecting from him upon their marriage. If disappointment was her genuine reaction, so the newspapers implied, then perhaps an excessive devotion to love was not her only motivation for murder after all. Mary's first weeks in prison were fairly comfortable. While the cold grey masonry of a Norman castle makes for austere surroundings, inside, if you had money, you could pay for food, furnishings, and any other little luxury you wished for to make prison life more tolerable. In her first weeks of imprisonment, Mary appeared to be cheerful, and occupied her time with every type of amusement which her situation allowed. 
This included drinking tea twice a day, walking in the keeper's private gardens, and playing cards. However, reports that a plot was at hand to break Mary out of jail soon put an end to leisurely strolls and card play. The risk of Mary escaping was discussed in October 1751 at the highest level in the land, the King's Council. Following this conference, a letter ordering that Mary must be confined to her chamber and placed in irons was received by the High Sheriff of Oxford from no less a figure than the Duke of Newcastle. The Duke had, for nearly a decade, shared power with the Prime Minister, who also happened to be his brother, and he would become Prime Minister himself within the next three years. The fact that politicians as powerful as the Duke of Newcastle were involving themselves personally in the conditions of Mary's imprisonment gives us some sense of how peculiar her case was regarded. The prisons of the 1750s were not exactly replete with affluent genteel murderesses, but it also gives an insight to how those in power considered it as vital for the sake of upholding justice and placating public opinion that Mary be treated in accordance with the seriousness of the charges against her and not be granted leniency and special favours on account of her social rank or sex. After Mary was placed in fetters, the papers smugly reported that she appeared more thoughtful, attended divine service, and behaved in a manner altogether more suitable for a lady charged with murder. Whether this was true or not, as she sat literally locked down in her prison chamber, Mary could surely not have helped but reflect on how far she had fallen from her comfortable Henley home, and on how impossibly distant her fiancé's newly redecorated apartments at his grand ancestral home of Lenel House now were. Yet despite the fetters, by December, rumours that Mary was attempting to escape were once again circulating in the papers, as were salacious whispers of her unvirtuous behaviour in prison. By the time Mary stood trial on the 3rd of March, 1752, she was notorious. Trials were public events in the 18th century. Anyone who wanted to could turn up to watch. To accommodate the huge crowd who wished to catch a glimpse of the famous Henley murderess, Oxford University's Divinity School was requisitioned as a make-do courthouse. A capacious medieval hall with an intricately carved ceiling and tall glass-paned windows running the full length of both sides of the hall, this was a suitably dramatic setting for the denouement of Mary Blandy's story. By the time Mary entered the hall, just before eight in the morning, the hall was uncomfortably crowded. According to one newspaper, the concourse of people who came to hear the trial was so great that the prisoner was much incommoded by the crowd behind her, and the witnesses so fatigued in coming into court that several of them were scarce kept from fainting. This must have been a noisy, bustling, hostile, overwhelming environment, and one which Mary, blinking in the light after her solitary prison confinement, had to endure for over twelve hours. The trial was held in one day, starting at eight in the morning and finishing at 8.30 that same night. Short, by the standards of modern-day murder trials, but unusually long for the time. Mary appeared in court dressed in black. She was described as serene and calm throughout the day, only crying once, 
when the old family friend, Mrs. Mountenay, was sworn in to give evidence. Mary's composure and serenity would have helped the case for her defence, albeit she had confessed before her arrest to several people, including the maid Betty Binfield and the physician Dr. Addington, that she had given her father the powder that had killed him, Mary still pleaded not guilty at trial. Her defence rested on the argument that she had believed the powder to have been perfectly innocent, and that she had not intended to harm, let alone kill, her father when she gave it to him. The explanation of her actions which she gave to the court was, in essentials, the same story she had recounted to Dr. Addington, when he first accosted her about the poison, two days before her father died. On that occasion, Mary had been anything but calm and serene. Face streaked wet with tears, wringing her hands and pacing her bedchamber, she had cried out that Captain Cranston had ruined her. He had sent her the powder, along with some pebbles, and told her that the powder was a love powder, which she should give to her father, little by little, now and then, in any liquid, as this would make him kind towards them both. Far from wishing her father harm, Mary claimed she had not known the white powder was arsenic. She had completely trusted Cranston, and only wanted to make her father look more kindly on them both, in the hopes that he would then give his permission for the couple to marry, despite the fact that Cranston had not been able to prove he was not already married. Mary admitted that she had poured some of the white powder into her father's tea six weeks before his death, but the powder had separated, and some had floated to the surface. Worried that the powder would be noticed, she had thrown the tea out of the window and poured her father a fresh cup. She claimed this was the one and only time she had mixed the powder into tea, and denied fervently that her father or any of the servants could have suffered arsenic poisoning after drinking tea. After observing that the powder separated in tea, Mary had written to Cranston for advice. She did not wish her father to know that he was being fed a love powder. It was Cranston who had advised her to stir the powder into a thickish fluid, such as water gruel. Mary claimed it was only after following this advice that her father first consumed the powder, and it was only when he became ill after eating the gruel that she realised the powder must be a poison. At trial, the defence counsel's task was to convince the jury of this version of events, and to convince them that Mary was a loving and dutiful daughter who would never have knowingly or deliberately harmed her father. They attempted this first by calling witnesses to attest to Mary's concern for her father during his illness. Mr Norton the apothecary and Susanna Gunnell the maid both trooped in to testify that Mary had been very worried about her father in his final days. They said Mary was not guilty of any neglect in respect of the care and tenderness a daughter would show a father during a time of sickness, and Mary had in fact gone against her father's wishes by calling a physician on the same day Mr Norton advised her to, rather than heeding her father's wish, that she wait at least one more day. Incidentally, both Mr Norton and Susanna Gunnell were also called as key witnesses for the prosecution, and so their testimony can probably be trusted as objective. So, Mary was concerned for her father during his illness. Having proven this, the defence then called on character witnesses who had known the Blandys for decades to testify to Mary's good character and her affectionate relationship with her father. Three respectable residents of Henley 
who had known the Blandys for at least 18 years or more, took the stand to swear that father and daughter had enjoyed a mutually happy and dutiful relationship, and that they had never heard Mary swear an oath or speak a disrespectful word about him. These men may have all been speaking truthfully, but as the old adage goes, who really knows what goes on behind closed doors? Maybe Mary didn't swear and damn her father in front of gentlemen acquaintances, but as we heard in episode two, she had no compunction about calling her father a rogue, an old villain, or a toothless old dog in front of the servants. Mary's defence team addressed this behaviour in court. Mary didn't deny she had sworn at and cursed her father, but she claimed those quoted instances were taken out of context by her enemies, and they were only ever hasty expressions said when she was in a passion. Who doesn't lose their temper once in a while? Who doesn't need to vent frustration occasionally? Another incident which Mary claimed had been twisted by her enemies was her short excursion out of the house and across Henley Bridge the day after her father died. Mary, who was meant to be confined to her room, was accused of having attempted to run away, and of trying to evade the law. But she pleaded she had only left the house that day because she was out of her senses. Her father was dead. She was accused of murdering him. She was forsaken by her friends, insulted by her servants, had been refused permission to go near her father, and had been deprived of her shoe buckles, keys and garters. When she saw the door open, she ran for it, even though she was only half-dressed. Mary's version of events was supported by two witnesses. Mary Davis, a lady living at the Angel Pub on the riverbank, testified that she saw Mary walking across the bridge, very softly and not in a hurry, with a crowd following her. When Mary Davis approached Mary Blandy, the latter said she had needed some air and so had come for a walk as her father's body was being cut open that day. The fact that she was barely dressed and certainly not outfitted to make a journey was testified by Robert Stoke, who later that day detained Mary on behalf of the sheriff. These were all peripheral details, though, that didn't touch on the core question of Mary's intent in giving her father the powder. To address this question, the defence had an ace up their sleeve. Their key character witness was none other than Mary's dead father, via the medium of Susanna Gunnell. Susanna gave a full account at trial of the final conversation between Mary and her father, to which she was the only witness, and said that in her opinion, Francis believed Mary had been wholly unacquainted with the effect of the powder, and was therefore entirely innocent. As far as the victim was concerned, Cranston, not Mary, was his one and only murderer. This was a persuasive testimony. On his deathbed, the murdered man himself had pronounced it impossible that his daughter was capable of willfully harming him, and he had endorsed the theory that his daughter was naive enough to have believed the powder to be an innocent, inoffensive thing, as she described it. In an age when quack medicine and superstition were still jostling for position with modern science, it is not at all implausible that a young person living a sheltered existence in a small town, should believe in a magical love powder, especially a young woman swept off her feet by a dashing army officer. The problem is, the picture the defence drew of a naive, gullible, affectionate daughter simply does not square with the facts and testimonies presented by the prosecution, which incidentally make up the narrative of the last two episodes of this Mary Blandy series. Facts and testimonies, moreover, 
which the defence could not counter with hard evidence of their own. If Mary had never actually given her father the powder in his tea, then why had Francis been suffering from the tell-tale symptoms of arsenic poisoning, stomach pains and vomiting, for several months before his death? Specifically, why had his bouts of sickness always erupted shortly after Mary received yet another gift of pebbles and powder from Cranston? Why had two of the household servants fallen ill after drinking Francis's leftover tea? If Mary had genuinely believed the powder to be innocent and harmless, why had she never tried some herself? And why was she so worried that her father might spot the powder in his tea? If she had realised, as she claimed, that the powder was poisonous after Francis had his gruel on the Monday week before his death, then why had she insisted on feeding him the same powder-laced gruel again on the Tuesday, and why had she tried to give him yet more gruel from the same pan on the Wednesday? If she had realised by this point that Cranston had deceived her, if she was horrified to discover that she had accidentally poisoned her father, then why did she not confess her foolhardiness to Dr Addington, or show Dr Addington the powder, in the hopes he would know an antidote? Or at the very least, preserve the letters from Cranston that allegedly proved his deception of her? Instead, Mary burned the powder and the letters when she was confronted by her father. And when Dr Addington told her her father had been poisoned, she rejected his diagnosis and tried to misdirect him by suggesting he was suffering a temporary bout of colic. Finally, if Cranston was the sole conspirator and had kept Mary in the dark as to his plans, then why had Mary written him a quick, urgent note in her father's final days, warning him to be careful of what he wrote to her in case his letters were intercepted? These were all questions the defence left unanswered. Instead of a point-by-point -point contention of the events as testified by numerous witnesses, including the household servants, the apothecary, the physician and the neighbour, the defence relied on the picture they had painted of Mary as an affectionate, loyal, over-trusting and deceived young gentlewoman to win over the jury's compassion. Would it be enough? As the trial reached its climax, the jury was asked to consider a simple question. Mary had given her father the powder that had killed him. That was not disputed. But had she done so, knowing it was poison, and knowing what the effects of that poison would be, or not? After twelve hours of hearing argument and counter-argument, the jury took just five minutes to confer. They pronounced Mary guilty. Mary accepted the verdict with the same calmness and forbearance she had demonstrated throughout most of the day, and was then returned under escort to her prison chamber in Oxford Castle. She was granted just under one month's reprieve to prepare herself for execution, but she did not use this time to repent, to confess, or to ask for forgiveness. Instead, Mary used her final weeks to rewrite the narrative of her life story and to plan the final spectacle by which he would be remembered long after her death. Central to both of these was a steadfast assertion of her innocence. During her final weeks, Mary was visited by a long line of clergymen, who all pleaded with her to confess the truth so as not to die a liar. To all of them Mary said that she had no design to destroy her father when she gave him the fatal powder and that she did not know there was any poisonous quality lodged in it. So please leave me alone, you can almost hear her add. 
The day before her execution, she signed a declaration insisting on her innocence and hoping for mercy, and she declared herself innocent again to the clergyman who prayed of her on the morning of her execution. This was Monday, 6th of April, 1752. Having pronounced herself not only willing, but inclinable to die, Mary left her prison chamber for the final time at about nine in the morning. Dressed smartly in black, with her arms and hands bound of black ribbons, she was escorted to the gallows by the minister, with whom she joined in fervent prayer, before turning to address the crowd. The guilty verdict had stoked the notoriety of the Blandy case to a fever pitch. The trial had been reported in newspapers across the country, and a pamphlet of the trial proceedings had sold out of its initial print run of 3,000 copies in just ten hours. Now a huge crowd of 5,000 spectators gathered in the grounds of Oxford Castle to watch the famous murderess go to her death. With her final words on this earth, Mary spoke to the crowd. Good people, give me leave to declare to you that I am perfectly innocent as to any intention to destroy or even hurt my dear father, that I did not know or even suspect there was any poisonous quality in the fatal powder I gave him, though I can never be too much punished for being even the innocent cause of his death. She then appealed to God and said she would not be acquitted by him or gain eternal salvation if she were not speaking the truth. I, from the bottom of my soul, forgive all those concerned in my prosecution, and particularly the jury, notwithstanding their fatal verdict. Good people, take warning by me to be on your guard against the sallies of any irregular passion, and pray for me that I may be accepted at the throne of grace. With that, Mary ascended the ladder. The crowds thronged close to the scaffold, gathering on all sides in almost touching distance. For the sake of decency, Mary had requested that she be hanged low. When the noose was put around her neck, she lowered a handkerchief over her face and gave the signal. Within half an hour, Mary Blandy was dead. Mary had doggedly maintained her innocence right up until death, and staked her eternal salvation on the truth of what she was saying. Why would she do this so adamantly, even after conviction, and while otherwise appearing so sincerely religious, if it was not the truth? Certainly she appears to have converted many of the spectators. Among the five thousand people gathered to watch her die, some reportedly shed tears, and impressed by her serenity and resolution, became convinced she was speaking the truth. A newspaper report concluded there was almost a profound silence all the time, and the whole was so well conducted and made such deep impressions that the circumstances attending it will not soon be forgotten at Oxford. Whether she was telling the truth or not, it was a remarkable and carefully choreographed final performance. She may not have overturned her sentence, but she had at least gone to her fate calmly and with dignity, and had persuaded many that she was hanged unjustly. This achievement was sealed by a pamphlet that was released shortly after her death. A true account of her relationship with Cranston and her father's death, which Mary had written in the final weeks of her life. This account became another runaway bestseller, inspiring further doubt and debate about the guilty verdict. The pamphlet paints Cranston as an affectionate, noble, decent man who was deeply in love with Mary, but on a bound not to propose to her until he could resolve the situation with the woman claiming to be married to him. 
Mary describes her mother as having been extremely fond of Cranston and supportive of the match, while her father comes off badly. His behaviour was unpredictable, sometimes kind to Cranston and sometimes rude, but on balance, more often opposed to the marriage than not. Mary claimed her father became particularly tetchy and cruel towards her after her mother's death in 1749. By the time of Cranston's autumn 1750 visit to Henley, Francis was so bad-tempered that Mary was bursting into tears on a daily basis. Upset to see his beloved so badly treated, Cranston urged Mary to allow him to give her father a love powder. He had first mentioned the love powder to her the previous year. He had obtained it from a wise woman, swore it had worked when he took some himself, and promised it was quite innocent and would do Francis no harm. Mary depicts herself as rationally apprehensive and dismissive of the powder. But then one day, when Mary was especially upset, Cranston stirred some powder into Francis's tea without first telling Mary. Francis drank the tea and was, by Mary's account, in a good humour and kind to her and Cranston for the rest of Cranston's stay. What a miracle! A love powder after all, then. Mary herself, she wrote, only gave her father the powder when pushed to desperation. She claimed that in the summer of 1751, Francis ordered her to write to Cranston and inform him that he was forbidden from returning to Henley until his affair with Miss Murray, his alleged wife in Scotland, was quite settled. In response, Cranston sent Mary some more of the love powder and urged her to give it to her father. In despair at her separation from Cranston, and fully trusting in his love and honour, Mary overcame her doubts and mixed it first in her father's tea, then, after seeing the powder separate, in her father's gruel. When she realised the awful truth that the powder must be harming her father, she tried to burn it and Cranston's letters, not to cover guilty tracks, but because she was embarrassed at her foolishness. Throughout the pamphlet, Mary's self-portrait is one of a dutiful, trusting and loving daughter and fiancé, whose good nature and loyalty had been imposed upon by a bad-tempered father and a deceitful lover. Far from being an unloving money-grabber, Mary declared that nothing in the world made her happier than helping the poor. She was a humble, generous woman, a paragon of genteel politeness, mercilessly betrayed by a trusted fiancé and condemned from the mouths of vindictive servants. This was how Mary wanted to be remembered after death. Was she believed then? Do we believe her now? We've been missing a key piece in our jigsaw puzzle, one which might hold the key to the truth. What was Captain Cranston's side of the story? A warrant was issued for Cranston's arrest in August 1751, shortly after the murder, and a reward offered for his capture. But Cranston was an experienced soldier and a veteran of juggling numerous mistresses without detection, not a man to be easily caught. He went into hiding, evading detection for over six months. Finally, when Mary was found guilty in March 1752, Cranston realised that his own only chance of survival was to leave the country. So he fled to France, evading capture and travelling under the assumed name of Dunbar. He arrived at Boulogne on the northern coast, but had the misfortune there to have a mere niss with some military relations of his Scottish wife, who were determined to revenge themselves on him for his treatment of her. A fugitive from justice on the one side and from vengeful in-laws on the other, in July Cranston fled Boulogne and travelled further up the coast, finally hunkering down in a small town called Furness in present-day Belgium. And there he died. 
After a short, painful illness, Cranston expired on the 30th of November, 1752, a mere eight months after Mary's execution. Just before he died, Cranston had converted to Catholicism, and so was buried in great solemnity in a Catholic church two days later, with a grand mass said over his body. In his last weeks he had time to make a will, bestowing all his inherited fortune of £1,500 on the child by the wife he had so persistently denied. A gesture of duty, or apology perhaps, at the very end. I hope the poor wife felt a little vindicated by this, though the second unnamed child by Cranston's mistress went empty-handed. As for his involvement in Blandy's murder, when asked about it, he is supposed to have said that Mary should not have blamed him so much. He is also supposed to have left his own account of the affair, sealed with a friend, to be read after his death. And indeed, a pamphlet purporting to contain Captain Cranston's own account of the murder, dictated from his deathbed, was printed in London in 1753. Whether or not this is genuine is questionable. But for what it's worth, in this account it is revealed that Cranston and Mary had in fact secretly and bigamously married some time before his final visit to Henley in late 1750. During this visit, Mary became anxious that her new husband would abandon her after sharing the intimacies of marriage, and she yearned to be able to leave Henley and to live with him openly as man and wife as early as possible. To achieve this end, Mary and Cranston began plotting how to get her father out of the way. In the pamphlet, it is claimed that Mary was fully aware the powder was poison from the start. As proof, the pamphlet contains reproductions of letters supposedly written by Mary to Cranston. In one, she expresses her anxiety that she will be discovered after one of the servants had accidentally been poisoned. In another, she writes how fatiguing it is to keep the business secret when she is surrounded by so many people, but that she is resolute, as this was the only way she and Cranston will ever be happy together. Again, we need to take the authenticity of this pamphlet with a pinch of salt. The publisher of the pamphlet never explains how Cranston's account came into his hands, and a couple of the dates he drops in describing the crime are out of sync with dates stated during Mary's trial. So what is the truth? There are two Marys in this story, one, a genteel, sensitive, articulate, well-educated woman who, despite her better instincts, was innocently duped by the man she trusted and loved into giving her father a fatal poison, and, accepting her responsibility, went calmly and with dignity to her death. The other is a bad-tempered, petulant, swearing woman who ruthlessly killed her own father in order to share his fortune with her unfaithful lover. Or... As we humans are usually more than two-dimensional cutouts from fairy stories, perhaps she was a bit of both. A loving woman with a temper. A loyal woman who would do anything for the person she loved, even commit murder. A naive woman who, inexperienced in crime, did with each attempt to cover her tracks, actually and inadvertently advertise her villainous deeds. Ultimately, whether or not you believe Mary to be innocent or guilty may come down to whether you think it possible that an educated woman who had lived in society could believe in a love powder. I think this is possible. Medical knowledge was far more limited in the 1750s than it is today. Quack medicine was still a huge trade, and the age of modern science had not yet supplanted all superstitions and passed down home remedies. As indeed, it still hasn't. So, is Mary's explanation of events possible? 
Certainly yes. Is it probable? On balance, I veer towards no. We may never know definitely whether Mary intended to kill her father or not, but that is what makes the case as fascinating now as it was 270 years ago. But having pored over the trial records, the newspaper reports and the warring pamphlets, I think there are other reasons why this became such a sensational well-known case. The heartbreaking patricide and the debatable question of guilt are the headlines, but the case also touched upon a number of key facets of everyday 18th century life in ways that may have undermined or reframed people's expectations of them. Just to give a few examples, tea was now served in every polite household in the land, yet this fortifier of civilised conversation had been twisted into a deadly drink. A servant was also a universal presence in even the smallest of households at this time. In the 18th century, your family were your blood relations and the servants that lived in your house. They were essential, omnipresent, and to some, a source of suspicion, the intruders on privacy, the spies peeping through every keyhole. Yet in this case, the sharp-eyed servants were crusaders for justice. The maid Susanna Gunnell and Betty Binfield were crucial in identifying Mary as the culprit, gathering evidence and testifying at trial. They proved more loyal to Francis Blandy than his own daughter had been. It was the servants, the labouring poor, who helped condemn a member of the propertied classes, and so upheld the justice system, which was usually weighted against them. And finally, and most fundamentally, this was a case of brutality invading the realms of politeness. Could a genteel young woman, raised to be a member of polite society, also be a calculating killer? That is for you to decide. Thank you for listening to this episode of Archive Sleuth. I'll be back with a brand new, lesser-known story from the archives next week. In the meantime, if you enjoyed listening, please subscribe to Archive Sleuth wherever you get your podcasts, and please be sure to spread the word to your friends and family. Archive Sleuth was written, narrated, and produced by me, Georgina Asfau. The music you heard was Waltz of Treachery by Kevin MacLeod, Our Story Begins by Kevin MacLeod, Ominous by Kevin MacLeod, Relent by Kevin MacLeod, and Sonatina in C Minor by Kevin MacLeod. The online archive resources Internet Archive, the British Newspaper Archive, and the Welcome Collection were used in the research of this episode. Full details of sources used can be found in the show notes. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.